The Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, begins with a, a long list of names. It's a genealogy. So-and-so was the son of so-and-so was the son of so-and-so was the son of so-and-so for a whole chapter. Kind of makes you want to bang your head against a wall. <laughs> but what seems boring to us would have been wildly interesting to Matthew's original readers. It would have felt like the opening credits of Star Wars, these facts rolling by. Matthew, in his genealogy, links together the great heroes of the Old Testament, Abraham, David, Zerubbabel. He links these here's the Old Testament to Jesus, and he shows how God's plan to rescue the world was already in action, and how Jesus is bringing that plan into clarity and fulfillment. But as he's writing this list, Matthew breaks the rules. He does something that no one ever does when they're writing a genealogy. He includes women. And not just any women, he includes women with remarkable and really often very painful stories. And that's exactly the case with not one, but two of the women in Matthew's genealogy, Tamar and Bathsheba. Women who are victims of circumstance and victims of powerful men. These stories of abuse are vitally important, if for no other reason than every 68 seconds an American is sexually assaulted. While the Bible, uh, and here's what's more, over half of women have experienced sexual violence involving physical contact during their lifetime. 82% of all juvenile victims of rape are female. 90% of adult rape victims are female. While the Bible tells stories of women being abused, and women are often the most likely to be abused, statistically, sexual violence isn't something that affects women only. Almost one in three men have experienced sexual violence involving physical contact during their lifetime. One out of every 10 rape victims are male. This morning, we want to look at the story of Tamar and Bathsheba, their, their stories of harm and healing. And full disclosure, in this talk, we are going to cover some sensitive topics, to be sure. And that might surprise or unsettle some of us who think that these topics aren't fit for church. As we speak of these women and their stories, we will do so honestly, but we won't do so graphically. Because we want to live with a sensitivity toward the people within the sound of my voice, for whom sexual violence is not an idea or a notion, but an experience. David Pallison has this wonderful little book. It's called Making All Things New, Restoring Joy to the Sexually Broken. And it's an unusual book on sexuality because it talks about sexual sin both as something that we do and something that is done to us. And in his book, he talks about this thing that he calls constructive candor. Constructive candor. He says... The Bible discusses many forms of sexual immorality and sexual victimization. 
So a vision for fidelity does not drive honesty about infidelity and betrayal underground. He says, prudish, not scripture. Squeamish about the sordid details of human life. No, the biblical authors speak openly, sometimes graphically, of rape, adultery, voyeurism, seduction, fornication, prostitution, homosexuality, gender-bending bestiality, incest, and the like. He says, Scripture teaches constructive candor. Candor, by the word, is a word that means honesty. Constructive candor. The opposite of euphemism and evasiveness it teaches accuracy, the opposite of titillation and, and brazen exhibition. So in the spirit of constructive candor, we want to speak about the kind of things the Bible speaks about, the way the Bible speaks about them, when the Bible speaks about them. And, and that when is particularly important because stories of sexual victimization aren't likely what you think to be a Christmas story. Sexual abuse, sexual violence is not necessarily going to feature on tonight's, like, Hallmark Gold premiere. So while we may think, why are we talking about this? Isn't Christmas a happy time? Let's just, if you think that's frustrating, let's go back to Mother's Day a few years ago where my entire sermon was on infertility. But um, what, what, what we want to do is talk about what the Bible talks about in the ways the Bible talks about it, when the Bible talks about it, and the Bible locates stories of sexual violence at Christmas time. That's what Matthew does. So I want us to listen to the story of Tamar. By the way, there's two Tamars in the Bible. One is a child of David. There's a whole Absalom thing. This is the Tamar in Genesis 38. So if you want to meet me in Genesis 38... Because these women, Bathsheba and Tamar, their stories are taken up by Jesus in the great story of redemption. And so they become far more than the things that were done to them. They are healed, redeemed, restored. And what is true for them could be true of us. So we're going to be in Genesis 38, talking about Tamar, the daughter-in-law of a man named Judah. But she's just one of two women that are, are victimized in the line of Jesus. The other is a woman named Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Now, depending on how you've heard the story, you might find it surprising to consider Bathsheba a victimized woman. Bathsheba was bathing on her roof one day. And by the way, this was a very common thing to do. So she's just doing a normal thing, minding her own business. And King David happens to go out on his balcony looking over the city and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And the right choice for David in that moment would be to be like, oh, I'm looking at a woman who's not my wife naked. I should probably look away and go inside. But David just looks on and lusts. And so David orders his servants to bring Bathsheba to the palace. Bathsheba's brought before him, and David sleeps with her. Now, I grew up hearing this story of David and Bathsheba as like the fall of an honorable man, and kind of here's how we avoid sexual temptation, and I think there's some pieces to that story that's there, but kind of the subtext of the David and Bathsheba story was that Bathsheba was like this temptress who brought a good man down. But as you read the story in the books of Samuel more carefully, what you find is that Bathsheba has no agency, no agency in the story. She is acted upon. She is never the actor. I've preached about Bathsheba 
twice, one of those times at Christmas time, so I'm not deep diving onto her, but there's two women in the line of Jesus. Bathsheba is placed in an impossible position. As a woman in the ancient Near East brought before her king who's lusting after her, she doesn't really have an ability to deny his advances. She's a victim of circumstance and therefore a victim of powerful men, and so too is Tamar, who we meet in Genesis 38. Genesis 38 actually opens, though, on a man named Judah. And Judah's family, to put it lightly, is messed up. Also, not a family story that's going to appear tonight's Hallmark Gold Crown. Uh, Judah is the fourth son of a man named Jacob. Jacob uh, has about a dozen sons in his life, and those sons come to him by two wives and two concubines. So the family dynamics are, again, to put it lightly, complicated, as David likes one of his wives far better than the other wife, not to mention the two concubines that have been thrown in. And that leads to all sorts of interesting sibling dynamics among who was whose mother and in what order their birth order fell. Uh, and especially given uh, that Judah's mother is the least favored of all his father's women, especially given that Judah's three older siblings through one act of misbehavior or another have been basically kicked out of the line of succession. Judah is a man who is desperate for his father's attention, but his father's eyes are only for one of Judah's younger brothers named Joseph. Joseph's, uh, the favoritism that Jacob has for Joseph has left a gaping father wound in Judah's heart. And out of that jealousy in the chapter prior in Genesis 37, Judah and his brothers sell the favorite son into slavery in Egypt. They, they traffic him. And then they go home and they lie to their dad and say, hey, your favorite son is, is dead. Judah is not a good man. Some of that is due to circumstances beyond his control, but a lot of that is due to his choices. Je Genesis 38 opens on Judah, who is a bitter, deceitful man. Judah gets married. Let's just have a moment of silence for that woman. <laughs> they have three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah, and it's in verse 6 where things get interesting. Genesis 38, starting in verse 6. In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Er, to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Er was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. I love the Old Testament. It just says things and then keeps going. Verse 8. <laughs> then Judah said to Er's brother, Onan. This is, this is going to get weird. This is going to be a sermon where it gets worse before it gets better, Okay. Then Judah said to Er's brother Onan, first son has died, he goes to the second son, go and marry Tamar, as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. Uh, when Er is struck down by the Lord, his death triggers a curious, but common, but also pretty creepy, ancient Near Eastern practice that's actually codified in the law of Israel. And that law is this, when a man died without an heir, without a child, his brother was then like responsible to sleep with his wife to produce an heir for him. Everybody is uncomfortable right now. <laughs> 
this is a creepy kind of thing, but you have to understand two things. In the ancient Near East, if you're a woman, the only identity that you have, the only hope and future, the only prosperity and protection you have is if you are married or if you have a male son. If you're a father in the ancient Near East, your only honor really is in the number of sons that you have. You're, if you're a brother in the ancient Near East and your brothers died, it is a deep sense of honor to go and do this with your dead brother's wife. And, it is a, and the wife, there's an element in which, there's a, there's a sense in which she is invested in the process so that she can find her way toward humanity in a culture that says the only way for her to be human is to have children. So verse 9 continues, But Onan was not willing to have a child who would, be, who would not be his own heir. And, and this has to do with, basically, if Onan gives Tamar a son, his share of the inheritance, which just got bigger, gets smaller. Right? Money always talks. Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled his seed on the ground. This is like one of those R-rated Bible stories. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother, so the Lord took Onan's life too. Again, Onan knows that if Tamar has a son, his share of his father's inheritance, which just got bigger, will actually get smaller. So he doesn't really want Tamar to have a son. He doesn't want to have a son through Tamar, but he is glad to use Tamar for his own pleasure while also doing everything that he can to ensure that Tamar won't have a child at all. This is evil in the sight of the Lord. It's, if nothing else, gross in our sight. So Onan is struck down. Judah, having lost two of his three sons, decides to send Tamar back to her parents. Judah says, why don't you just go back home? My son Shelah's not really old enough to marry you. So why don't you go back home? And when, and when Shayla gets old enough, I'll call you, you can come back, and then he'll give you an heir. But the text explicitly says, Judah has no intention of doing this. I mean, any of his sons that he's gotten anywhere near Tamar have croaked. He has no intention of risking the life of his only and final son in that way. So Tamar returns to her parents' home, and she languishes. Tamar is without a husband, she is without sons, and in the ancient Near East, this is a death sentence. Tamar can't own land, she can't own a business, she has no means of providing for herself, and her father and her brothers can be only minimally involved, because technically she's not really part of their family anymore. She's part of Judah's family now. So she is honor-bound and duty-bound to produce a male son. It is her only path to identity and meaning. Having a son will be her only contribu meaningful contribution to the world. Are you starting to get a sense of how desperate her situation is? Because you need to have that settled in your mind for what happens next to make sense. To westernize, it just, to modernize, it just feels like, oh, this is too bad for Tamar. But really, Tamar's life, this is as desperate as it could possibly ever get for her. She is caught between a rock and a hard place. She is hopeless and she is penniless. And so, 
like so very many women throughout history, even through to today, Tamar makes the only decision available to her. Look at verse 12. Some years later, Judah's wife died. So she's been with her parents for years. And after the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira the Adulamite went to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. And someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep. Verse 14, Tamar was aware that Shelah had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat by the road at the entrance of the village to a name, which was on the road to Timnah. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So he stopped and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing it was his own daughter-in-law. Upon learning that her father-in-law would be passing by, she disgu Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute, and her father-in-law, blinded by arrogance and lust, doesn't even recognize that the woman he's propositioning is his own daughter-in-law. And what happens next is that Tamar moves from acted upon to actor. Look at the last half of verse 16 as it continues. He says, let me have sex with you. She says, how much will you pay to have sex with me? Tamar asked. I will send you a young goat from my flock, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat? See, Tamar's a smart woman. What kind of guarantee do you want? He asked. She answered, leave your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick you are carrying. So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her and she became pregnant. Afterwards, she went back home, took off her veil and put on her widow's clothing as usual. Tamar returns to her father's house, carrying Judah's child and carrying some of Judah's most valuable possessions. He gave her his staff and his signet ring. Like the modern equivalent of like your passport and your credit card. He just like left with the prostitute he slept with. Judah, when he wakes from his lustful stupor and kind of realizes what's happening, sends a servant to go get his things. Hey, take this goat, take it to the prostitute. I left her my staff and my signet, you'll figure it out. And when the servant gets there, the prostitute is nowhere to be found. Everybody at the gate is like, we've never seen this person before. And now there's this random woman with his credit card and his passport. So of course Judah's like, well, let's just not tell anybody about it because that would be embarrassing. <laughs> Three months go by and word reaches Judah that Tamar is pregnant. Word reaches Judah that Tamar's fallen pregnant. And since legally she's still promised to Judah's third, third son, this is tantamount to adultery in his mind. So Judah calls for her life to be ended in an honor killing. Just keeps getting good, doesn't it? Tamar has an insurance policy. She's got the staff and the signet. So look at verses 25 and 26. As they were taking her out to kill her, this poor woman... She sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. 
Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? It doesn't say this in the English translation, but in the Hebrew, you know what it all says? Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these, dummy? It's kind of what it, right? Judah recognized them immediately and said, listen to this in verse 26. This is wild. She is more righteous than I. I'm sorry, what now? She's more righteous than I because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shelah, and Judah never slept with Tamar again. As Tamar is taken from her father's house to be put to death, she sends the staff and the seal back to him. Judah realizes what he's done. And he's realizing not just what he's done by sleeping with his daughter-in-law, but, but taking advantage of her powerlessness and stripping her of any meaningful humanity and dignity. So Judah, Judah, who has trafficked his brother, deceived his father, spent all of his days desperately seeking his father's approval, who there at the end tried to add honor killing to his resume, declares that his daughter-in-law who disguised herself as a prostitute and slept with him, he declares that she is more righteous than he is. She is more righteous than he is. The Bible is weird. But let me explain to you really what's happening, okay? Tamar does, in fact, produce a male heir. In fact, she produces two. It's almost as if the Lord saw sweet Tamar whose options were limited whose circumstance had placed in an impossible situation it's almost like the Lord saw sweet Tamar who was just a girl when she came to Judah's house it's almost like his compassion moved toward Tamar as she became a pawn in the politics of Jacob's house it's almost like the Lord heard every cry and captured every tear as Tamar was used again and again by Onan. It's almost like the Lord saw her languishing in her father's house. And as those two baby boys are placed in her arms, one boy, by the way, for each husband she's lost. As those baby boys are placed in her arms, it's almost like you can hear the Lord whispering, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. I mean, what exactly is happening here? What kind of woman is Tamar? And why is she and Bathsheba included in the line of Jesus? To answer, turn with me to Ruth chapter 4 for just a minute. Joshua Judges, Ruth, the very end. We're going to explore this book more next week. We're going to explore Ruth next week because she's also included in the line of Jesus. Um, but in Ruth chapter 4, we come upon a wedding. Ruth is a, a foreigner, an immigrant, a Moabite woman who is marrying a man named Boaz, who, by the way, is a descendant of Judah and Tamar. And this is the wedding blessing that is pronounced over them in chapter 4, starting in verse 11 of Ruth. Then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied. The gates, by the way, that's where everything public happened in, in ancient Near East, right? So that's where you met prostitutes, had weddings, did your legal business. It was all in the city gate. One-stop shop. 
The elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman, Ruth, who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Verse 12. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. I don't know about you, but a wedding does not seem the right time to invoke the name of a prostitute unless... She is far more than a prostitute. See, the word prostitute like leaps up off the page and makes us think that here is Tamar, yet another woman trying to bring a good man down. Doesn't Tamar's name in the line of Jesus, isn't that a strange call on Matthew's part? Doesn't her name, doesn't her presence stain the line of Jesus? Not at all. It is Judah. Judah, the liar, the fool, who is the final word on just what kind of woman Tamar is. She isn't a vixen. She isn't a woman trying to bring a good man down. She is, in his words, righteous. That's why she's included at the wedding blessing. He says, she is more righteous than I. And other translations get it better because what Judah actually says is, she is righteous, not I. Tamar is found in a desperate position. She is stuck between a rock and a hard place. In the patriarchal world of the ancient Near East, her only hope and future, her only path to honor and identity, her only sure way of protection and provision is to have a son. And so she takes the only path available to her. Tamar is not a calculating vixen. She is a victim of both circumstance and of the powerful men who used her. Tamar is not the villain of this story. She is the hero. The action of the story revolves around her courageous, if perhaps questionable, actions, which, and this is important, radically changed the trajectory of the rest of the book of Genesis. Because in Genesis chapter 38, we meet Judah, who is self-serving and a liar and a deceiver and wounded. But later on, when Judah finds himself in Egypt, standing in front of his brother Joseph. And when Joseph, to test their loyalties, tries to keep Benjamin, his father's new favorite, in Egypt with him, it is Judah who says, I volunteer as tribute. Don't take my father's youngest son. It'll break his heart. Take me instead. The only possible explanation for Judah moving from this self-centered lustful man to this self-sacrificing man that changes the entire trajectory of the book of Genesis. The only explanation for that is his collision with Tamar, which is why he declares she is righteous, not I. As the story moves on, Judah proves himself to be self-sacrificing and gentle and tender-hearted. How did he get that way? It was his collision with Tamar that revealed to him his deep sin and his, his selfishness and his pride and his arrogance and his foolishness. And so as the story of redemption carries on, it is Judah's name that will rise to the top of the scriptures. It is Judah's tribe that will become most influential because Jesus is, after all, the lion of Judah. As Judah careens through his life, 
a broken man, he collides with Tamar, and the trajectory of his life changes forever. Judah would not be Judah without his collision with Tamar, which alters the trajectory of the scriptures as he declares, she is righteous, not I. This does not feel like a Christmas story that you would see on Hallmark. This does not feel like a Christmas story at all. Why is this story important? Why especially is this story important for us? Important for those among us who have experienced abuse, misuse, and sexual violence, whose daughters or sons or grandchildren or siblings have experienced abuse, misuse, and sexual violence. Why is this important? It is important because the story of Tamar, Beth, and Bathsheba included in the line of Jesus tell us loudly that the abused and misused are deeply valuable to Jesus. It tells us that the abused and misused are deeply valued by Jesus and seen by him. It is significant that not one, but two of the women in the line of Jesus are victims of sexual violence. It is as if God is communicating that he has twice the concern for victims of such harm, twice the concern for these tender, broken hearts. David Pallison, in this book, Making All Things New, he says, when you are used, misused, and abused, sex becomes very dark. Harassment, groping, seduction, bullying, predation, attack, betrayal, and abandonment are among the many ways that sex becomes stained by the sufferings of the hands of others. Immoral fantasies do bring one poison into sex, but abuse brings another. Nightmarish memories can leave the victim self-labeled as damaged goods. He goes on to say, if such things have happened to you, you might well feel hatred, terror, and disgust. You might feel guilt and shame and self-reproach over what someone else did to you. To those for whom sexual experience has resulted in unholy pain, Christ says, I understand your experience. I hear the cries of the needy, afflicted and broken. I am your refuge. I am safe. I will remake what is broken. I will give you reason to trust and then to love. He says, I will remake your joy. Second, it means that those of us who have been victimized, or and it may not be you, it might be your sister or your brother or your son or your daughter, those who are victimized are far more than what happens to them. Tamar is more than just a victim of circumstance. Through the grace of God, she is mightily used in redemption. In the hands of Jesus, in the hands of Jesus, in the hands of Jesus, we become so much more than the things we have done and the things that have been done to us. In the hands of Jesus, we become so much more than the things that we have done and the things that we have been done to us. But as we look at the story of Tamar, we see that her healing happens in a curious way. Because for the most part, in Genesis 38, we don't really hear from the Lord, do we? The Lord doesn't jump into the narrative and tell Tamar what to do. The Lord doesn't miraculously show up and heal all of Tamar's wounds. 
He doesn't smite Judah the way he smited Er and Onan. The only activity that God has in the story is, is actually very minimal, but Tamar's healing comes to her, and this is how healing often comes to so many of us. Healing comes to us through small, everyday decisions of courage and faithfulness. I think we want our journeys to be marked by healing that happens in an instant, and, and that happens sometimes. The Lord does that. But so very often, our journeys are also uh, ones where healing and transformation is over a process of days and weeks and months and years and decades. And we want to hold out and have faith for God to heal in both ways, but it seems that in Tamar's story, it doesn't seem like God is out there big and fancy but he works behind the scenes behind Tamar's decisions to bring about healing for her and a new future for Judah by the way this story tells us that there is some there's an uncomfortable truth for those who have experienced abuse and misuse that there is grace extended towards those who have abused you it's the problem with grace isn't it everybody gets it it's the problem with mercy, isn't it? Everybody gets it. So that isn't just Tamar's story that's transformed, it's Judah's. On this second Sunday of Advent, which is about peace, Tamar's story draws our hearts and minds to the abuse and the misuse that may have stained our families or the families of those that we love. It might just bring to mind, as we see in the face of Judah, the eight dozen dysfunctions in our families of origin might bring to mind the dysfunctional relationships the the contact that's been cut off the forgiveness that's never been offered the the distance the weirdness on the second Sunday of Advent we are reminded as Harry and Kathy led us earlier that we don't have to go looking for peace but that peace has come to find us even in the midst of dysfunction in the midst of the harm in the midst of the abuse peace has come to find us so Father I just pray for those who are in the sound of my voice for whom this is a very personal thing um, Lord I pray that your peace right now would minister to them Lord, I, I pray um, it says that the peace of Christ will rule our hearts. It says that the peace of Christ will walk guard duty around our hearts. And so, um, Lord, I ask for a fresh release of your peace over those in the sound of my voice for, for whom abuse is not a statistic but an experience, either for them or for someone they love. I pray for Lord those that are experiencing dysfunction this Christmas season and mourning that and um, wishing they could have a more hallmarky Christmas and Lord I pray that your peace would move toward them today and Lord help us to kind of lift our eyes above the mess to see the trajectory along which you're leading us which is higher and better we pray this in the name of Jesus who is the Lion of Judah Amen.